So we will continue with our study of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, where we find Sri Ramakrishna is visiting Vidyasagar, and with him the discussion is going on. So we will start from the portion which we just uh, started in the last class. Uh, we will continue with the discussion of that portion where we find that through the conversation of Rama and Hanuman. The Hanumana's answer to Rama is a very, very significant answer through which we can find that Dvaita, Vishishta Dvaita and Advaita, these three philosophies are actually three perspectives to look at the same reality. So, in Sanskrit, the darshana means perspective, as we were indicating in the last class. So we loosely translate it as philosophy, but it speaks not exactly of the philosophy. It speaks darshana. This in Sanskrit, the word darshana means to see. So seeing from a particular perspective. So all the philosophies are as such. All the darshanas are correct from the perspective from which they are looking. If you look from that perspective, they are all correct. So let us uh, read the conversation and then we will go to the discussion. Once Rama asked Hanuman, how do you look on me? And Hanuman replied, O Rama, as long as I have the feeling of I, I see that thou art the whole and I am a part. Thou art the master and I am the servant. But when, O Rama, I have knowledge of truth, then I realize that thou art I and I am thou. So here Sri Ramakrishna is actually referring to a sloka. The sloka is very interesting where we find that Hanuman's reply to Rama. What's that? That when Rama asked, what do you think of me? How do you look upon me? Dehavadhyā dāsoham. As long as I feel I'm the body. The I has two components. What Sri Ramakrishna is saying is the same thing is being told here. The sense of ego has two components. That is psycho 
and physical, mind and body. So as long as I'm the body, that I is identified with the body, Dehavudya, Dasoham, you are my Lord, I am your servant. Jiva Buddha, the another component of I is the mind. Jiva, that which transmigrates. It's the mind which transmigrates. We have many bodies that, you know, scripture, very nice example is given just the way we pair our nails. From our body, the nails come out, we pair, again the nails come out. So similarly, the real body is the mind from which the physical body, just like the nail is coming out, it withers it as if it is paired off, again another physical body comes out. So this, the body, the body which is behind the physical body, the mind, which transmigrates, that is the jiva. When I am identified with the mind, jiva buddhya, the vangshaka, that speaks of the vishishta dvaita, that you are the whole, I am the part. Atma buddhya, tvame vaham, tvam eva aham. So when I am identified with the self, then there is no difference between you and me. Tvam eva aham. You are verily the me. You are and me the same. Iti me nishchita mati. This is my firm conviction. So in the last class we started the discussion that deha buddhya, so when I think I am this physical body with all the five senses through which I am looking out at the universe, the impression comes that the universe is already there existing. I, after taking birth in this physical body through my senses, am looking at it. I take for granted the existence of the universe to be real. Is objective reality, I take it for granted. I don't question my the credentiality of my senses. I take them for granted. With this perspective, at last, if we try to find out, if we try to search the cause behind the entire existence, we will find that there is a figure much, much bigger than life, an intelligence much bigger than life from which the creation has emanated. I'm just a, I am just a small part, it's not a part. I am just an entity in that creation, which is totally being guided by that super intelligence. In the last class, with the help of the anthropic principle in science, we were trying to understand. But the anthropic principle says in science that most probably at the inception of the universe, at the moment the Big Bang happened, the entire plan of the universe, everything in details was as if encrypted. That we are today having the class, even in the last class we were saying that this also was planned at the time of the Big Bang. How? Because general from the our general understanding is that, that life came by accident. The creation is an accident. But if we take it as an accident, it's very difficult to believe. Accident is a singular occurrence. 
there cannot be sequential accidents exactly in the same precision that hundreds, thousands, millions of accidents in precision at last to enter my existence or your existence or the existence of the universe. As in the last class, we were saying that for the Big Bang to happen, if the force was a bit more, creation wouldn't have been possible. Everything would have been scattered out. If it was a bit less, the gravitation would have pulled back everything. Just the way we throw anything, it comes back. Whatever was being projected would have been pulled back to create a black hole. Creation wouldn't have been possible. The force with which the Big Bang happened is some very, very precision force. A little more, a little less creation wouldn't have been possible. So now we can say that it was an accident. Now the formation of atoms. There we find that the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force, the ratio is such that the formation of atom was possible. Otherwise, the subatomic particles are forming and dissipating. It wouldn't have resulted in atoms, elements, matter, nothing would have been possible. If that ratio was not just exactly the ratio of what it is, little more, little more, less, even there, there's no matter, matter wouldn't have formed. So like that, we were just saying that thousands of such coincidences happened. When we came down, when we come down to the earth, its gravitation is such, which allows the oxygen in the atmosphere to stay. If the gravitation was more, heavier gas gases would have been in the atmosphere. Life wouldn't have been possible. If the gravitation was less, only hydrogen and helium would have been in the atmosphere. Life wouldn't have been possible. The tilt of the earth is such, 23 and a half degrees. If it was a bit more perpendicular, the, it would have been so hot, life wouldn't have been possible because the sun rays will fall more perpendicularly. Life wouldn't have been possible. If it was a bit more oblique, it would be so cold, life wouldn't be possible. So like that, if you go to the human body, each and every moment, the hormones, the enzymes, everything is secreted, exact amount. We know that all the diseases because of that disproportion. Nowadays we hear that the, our immune system, there is autoimmune disease. If your immune system is overreactive, it will cause, it will result in some disease. If your insulin secretion is less or more, again, it will be just because of your blood sugar, your blood pressure, everything is just in what it should be. So that in Buddhism, they say that breathe in, breathe out, and just contemplate that of the miracle of life. Because to have disease is normal. To enjoy health is something which is a matter of big uh, surprise. That how many things are going on exactly in precision to make life possible. So after seeing the sequence of so many so-called singular accidents happening in so such a wonderful sequence. So there's a, from the corner of certain science block, the question that's being put forward, 
would you say this is all accident? Don't if the accidents are if all so many accidents are happening in such a precision, doesn't it speak of a plan behind it, a design behind it? So if we take the creation to be something which is real, even then we have to think of some super intelligence behind it. Otherwise, so many things would was not possible to have in such exact sequence to make life possible, to make this universe exist. So from that, the question of that super intelligence, who is the one who has created? I am in no way have any freedom in this life to overrule all those laws. In Sanskrit, those laws are called the rhythm. I am within that rhythm. That's why rhythm is called satyam. They're the truth because no one can break them. So this makes, gives us that conviction that I am just like a servant. It is he who wills. As per his will, I have to, I have to obey. I have to follow the laws which he has set for me. So when as a deha with the senses, I'm looking out and just taking the creation to be real, at last I have to come to that sense uh, of that my relation with the reality is what? The ultimate reality of is I'm, I'm totally separate from it, but I'm totally being controlled by it. So I am the dasa. Jiva buddhya, the vangshaka. When we identify with ourselves with the mind, then you will find that the ultimate reality is the whole of which we are a part. Again, let us try to understand that all the perceptions happen with the mind. All our perceptions happen with the mind. So when Ultimately, the mind is the thing in which the mind which uh, processes all the so-called piecemeal informations to make the perception possible. When I see the red flower, as so many times we have told, there is no redness outside. A particular wavelength of light which is, which is striking the retina of my eye, after that, it gets converted into some nerve impulse, which when reaches the brain, the color perception center actually projects the color and it goes and envelops the so-called flower to give the redness. So the redness is being projected. So now very thing, the very interesting thing, we can easily say that the entire universe is a hallucination. There is something, but we can never know what it is. The mind is showing me is project, whatever it is projecting, that's what I am seeing. Now, very interesting thing, but this hallucination is very, very controlled hallucination. Why? See, if our minds were all discrete, your mind was separate from my mind, I would have hallucinated in one way, you would have hallucinated in another way. What I say red, see red, you, may have, you might have seen it as green. Someone might have seen it as yellow each and every mind would have hallucinated in its own way. And there would have been a chaos as per our interaction is concerned. We could have never interacted because all the perceptions, each and every mind is 
projecting the universe in its own way, if it was a fact, then there would not have been any consensus reality. So now you will find, like the Dvaitins, the Advaitins are not, uh, the Vishishta Advaitins are not taking the universe as something just real. Something is there which is being projected as this universe. And we all see it in the same way. And that gives the sense of consensus reality. It's not absolute reality, consensus. We all consent that yes, as we are all hallucinating in the same way, we say, yes, it is red. So this speaks of one common mind, just like in your computer. There is a server computer with which so many other computers are networked. And by default, they all function in the same way. Of course, I can uh, work on my computer based on whatever that I get as default. Over that I can work. But by default, something is common. So here also, that like the server computer, there is a common mind by default, which has actually decided how we should perceive the universe. So this speaks of the reality, the absolute reality as a whole of which we all form as a part. So this gives the idea of Jiva Buddha, the Vangshaka. When you consider yourself as the mind, the thing which transmigrates, you're identifying not with the body, then you find that there is this one collective mind is there of which we form a part. The collective mind, the Ishwar, of which we form a part. So there we find that it is a question of whole and part. Atma buddhya tvamevaham. So here comes the Advaita. When you go beyond the mind. Yes, we are all that the same light is being broken into the spectrum of seven colors. And our individual minds are being a part of that uh, conscious, what you say, the collective mind. We all are projecting the universe in the same way. But there is a way in our sadhana when you go beyond the mind. When one goes to the nirvikalpa samadhi, when all this word nirvikalpa itself speaks, going beyond the mind, vikalpa, all sorts of uh, uh, what you say that uh, uh, perceptions, where it has stopped, there is no perception, you have gone beyond the mind, where the prism has been removed. The spectrum now merges with the white light. So now that white light speaks of our that's non-dual reality. We are just giving the example to understand. When the mind is not there, we all merge in that absolute reality. When the mind comes into picture, the universe is. When the mind is not, the universe is not. Even God is not. In Advaita, they say that the conscious principle alone exists. The moment it gets projected through the mind, then the question of the ruler and the rule comes. Swami Vivekananda uh, gave a wonderful example. He created that example when he was visiting the um, Niagara Falls. And for the first time he went to the Niagara Falls, he was really 
charmed to see, amassed to see the rainbow always there. Now, because of pollution at night, you don't see. In the olden days, even at night, on full moon night, the rainbow was visible. So that rainbow is always there. Seeing that rainbow, Swami Vivekananda immediately created a wonderful allegory. What he told is very interesting. That the Niagara Fall, as long as the Niagara Fall is there, that's like the mind which is flowing, on which the sun's rays falls. And it, the rainbow is being created. So, as long as the Niagara Falls will be there, the rainbow will be there. The moment the Niagara Falls, if it gets dried up, it's not there. The rainbow won't be there, but the sun is always there. So sun is the Brahman, rainbow is the Ishwara, and this Niagara Falls is the Jagat. Mind is a part of the Jagat. Like Jagat means which is flowing, Sangsara means flowing, so Niagara Falls is flowing, mind is also flowing. If the mind stops flowing, we go beyond the mind. So this all, as long as we are a part of this Sangsara, this flowing, then the Brahman appears as rainbow. The rainbow also is something fixed. It's not changing. The water flow is flowing, but the rainbow is just fixed in the sky. There is no flow there. So that's why Swami Vivekananda very nicely defined Ishwara. That what is God? God is the highest reading of the Absolute. When through this mind we try to understand the highest, the Absolute, through the mind it is impossible. The ultimate reading of the Absolute which we can get through the mind is Ishwara. So the rainbow is there as long as the mind is there. When the mind is not there, Niagara Falls is not there, the rainbow vanishes. But the Brahman, the sun, it's always there. So the spectrum has fallen off when we go beyond the mind. We become one with the absolute reality. And that's what is being indicated by Atma Buddhya Tvam Eva Aham. All the spectrum vanishes. As spectrum, violet is always a, sep a, a separate spectrum from the red. All the spectrums are different, but they all merge into one. The moment the the prism is removed and the spectrum merges with the white light. So all the differences are as long as the mind is there. When you go beyond the mind, we all merge in that absolute reality. Now you will find what a wonderful answer Hanuman is giving. That it is a three different perspective. As long as I am identified with the body, and I try to find out the absolute reality, what it is. I will have an idea of a much larger than life, a figure, super intelligence, who is as if controlling the universe. That's what we find in all the dual religions. It is he who has created, planned, designed. So that's in all the Abrahamic religion, even in our a Hindu religion also we find that idea is there. But it, the religion never stopped there. We find that there is the idea of Vishishta Dvaita, where we find that the absolute truth is spoken of as the whole of which we are a part. So when, when that happens, when through the mind you are trying to find out the nature of the absolute reality, ultimate reality, then you find it is the whole of which you are the part. The consensus reality has been created 
in that whole which we are bound to see as a part of that uh, collective mind. So that's how the uh, what you say that our interaction is possible because it's all hallucination, but we are all hallucinating in the same way in a controlled fashion that speaks of the consensus reality. And that speaks of the part and the whole. Jiva buddhya, the vangshaka. And when you go beyond the mind, when you get a, when you get merged in the self, you go beyond the mind. So that's the beauty of Vedanta and Yoga. See, in Western philosophy, they say that Descartes' famous quotation, I think, therefore I am. So there we find that the Self is being equated with thought, with the mind. The mind is equal to the self. So in Vedanta, we find this idea. It's not actually only in Vedanta. Other religions also did echo the same thing, but somehow it was not encouraged. Those who, through their spiritual, intense spiritual absorption, went to that realization. The mystics in all the religions were branded as heretics. Somehow in Vedanta that there was freedom in religion. They were allowed, they were revered, they were considered as prophets. So in all the religions it has happened because all any uh, if anyone takes spirituality sincerely, doesn't remain uh, satisfied only with the make beliefs and the doctrines and dogmas, just try to dive deep into the spiritual life, they're bound to go to that type of realization, which speaks of the unity. They're bound to go. In every religion, there are saints who went to that realization. But yes, it was not encouraged in the other tradition. They were branded as heretics. But we should know that, yes, all the religions are true because they did help them to go to that realization. That's what Ramakrishna used to say, all the religions are true. Many nowadays say that Ramakrishna's this word have no meaning. It has no meaning as long as we are satisfied with the doctrines and dogmas, with the rituals, with all the theology. Yes, there is so much variation. When Ramakrishna says that all the religions leads to the same goal, he is the one who was not satisfied with the just mere belief. He practiced all the religion to go to the realization. And that's why he is actually speaking the language of the mystics of all the religion, where we would find all the religions speaks the same thing. Shekhane shab shealer akra. All the fox howls in the same manner when they reach that state. So that's where that's that's happened when Atma Vidya Tvamevaham Itime Nishchitamati. Just see this Ramakrishna in this conversation with Vidya Sagar. As Vidyasagar is a pandit, to, with the householders when he's talking, in some other uh, conversations we will find, he's speaking mainly of bhakti, that uh, in, with, in, with one hand hold on to God, with another hand take the responsibility of the sangsara, that whatever is possible for a householder to do, in a simple language he's speaking. But here we find his knowledge is being unfolded because he's conversing with a with the one who is extremely scholarly, Vidya Sagar, the title was given, means one is an ocean of learning. And here we find 
Ramakrishna's knowledge is unfolding spontaneously. In such a simple language, he's speaking of the profound truths. Layers after layers of understanding is being opening up through his conversation. So now let us proceed to the Ramakrishna's words. Uh, the relationship of master and servant is the proper one. Since this I must remain, let the rascal be God's servant. So after speaking of these three perspectives, three darshanas, Dvaita, Vishishta Dvaita and Advaita. Now Ramakrishna is saying that all the three are th correct. Three from the three perspectives, they are all correct. But as we are extremely bound in our physical existence, we all have the Deha Buddhi. We even cannot identify ourselves with the mind. This we will find throughout the day. It is the Deha Buddhi which guides us. Our hunger, our thirst, our attire, the dress, whenever we go out, the way we want to uh, make ourselves to appear in front of others, everywhere we find the body becomes the guiding principle of our life. Deha Buddhi is very difficult to go beyond that. So if that's the situation, just to say Aham Brahmasmi, it's something I am saying which I don't realize. I am trying to relate to the highest absolute from the perspective of this physical existence and I am speaking of the one who has gone beyond the body, mind and the senses. So that's why Sri Ramakrishna is saying the relationship of the master and the servant is the proper one. For most of us, that's the thing. Just to say that I am the one with the absolute reality is blasphemy for us because we know we can relate to that fact because we are so much identified with the body. That's why she is saying, since this I must remain as it is still there, let that rascal be God's servant. How nicely is saying that let that rascal I, which is the cause of all our suffering, let just subdue it, make it. It is always God's servant. Be aware that you are a servant. Don't think that you are the doer and the enjoyer, karta and bhokta, as if you are the lord of the universe. Know it for certain. You are just the God servant. The way God makes you act in this life, you are bound to act that way. So that's what, and be always aware of that. So let the rascal be God's servant. I and mine, these constitute ignorance. My house, my wealth, my learning, my possessions. The attitude that prompts one to say such things comes of ignorance. On the contrary, the attitude born of knowledge is, O oh God, thou art the master and all these things belong to thee. House, family, children, attendants, friends are thine. So he has created the universe. He has created me. All the responsibilities which I have to undertake for that, all the good qualities, love, compassion, altruism, he has implanted in my heart. 
and made me his instrument it's not i love my children i love my relatives it is not i who am compassionate to the one who is suffering that all that compassion altruism all those feelings lord has implanted in our heart if he have if he would have not implanted you would never feel that compassion is that compassion altruism love something which we can say that we have developed it was there in our heart even a small child you will find uh, uh, that in narottam nagar when I, in arunachal pradesh when i was there we used to go for admission test so just for the preparatory student just to see whether they can write the alphabets because there were many applicants so we made that a point that if if you can write the alphabets and the numerals numericals so then we will uh, consider you for admission so we used to go to the interior villages where in the circuit house the children used to come we used to give them pen and paper that how that compassion works even in the small children you will find altruism works they all we all respond to each others emotions when i was the for the first time i was not aware of one thing when the children naturally when they are there in the circuit house sitting together for the test they do feel nervous and some of them start crying for the first time when i went there i never noticed that i was crying what to do let him cry and in no time in 5 minutes we found all the children just kept aside their pen and pencil and all are crying we couldn't take the admission test and another day we have to come to take that test and now we had a few more volunteers if we found if any children is crying immediately we will take him to some other room and give him some toffee and try to cajole him so that the test the exam is not disturbed so what it speaks of it speaks of that all we have that love emotion that that we somehow reciprocate to others suffering from where it came who taught that children no one it was there in the heart that's the idea even in bhagavad gita we find when bhagwan is saying sahayagya praja srishtva puro vacha prajapati anena prasavishvadhyam hostishtatva kamadhuk so sahayagya yagya means this interrelatedness no one can in this creation just exist by its by his own right he has to be a part of interdependence everything is interdependent so with this idea of interdependence the he has created this universe sahayagya prajasrishtva so all the love all the responsibilities which i am handling at present it's not me i am not the karta i am not the doer someone else is doing through the me i am just the instrument so if we are aware of this though we have the sense of body this can entail in annihilating in reducing the suffering in life all the suffering comes from the sense of doer and enjoyer that i have done so much thing in return won't i accept even a small even a little kind words when our children are harsh towards us that's what we say is this i ex- expect from you that whether the ch- children should be uh, harsh towards their parent that is a different thing but if i feel hurt that he shouldn't be harsh 
that's a different thing that, you, that they have to be educated. But if I feel hurt, we should know it for certain that, that there was an acceptance, that there was an, something we were expecting. Expectance was lingering behind us. We were expecting something. And that expectation came because I thought I am the doer. So when I become just like the servant, knowing well, God is working through me, then only that itself will bring a detachment. To get established in Advaita is far, far away. We need not even think of it at present. But, and that will actually speak of hypocrisy. As Sri Ramakrishna says that you say Aham Brahmasmi and even a small pin pricks you and you, get, you feel hurt and immediately you react. If you are Brahma, then why should you react? So we, if when I say Aham Brahmasmi, it's something to which I cannot relate. So at present, as we are so much attached to the body, to our psychophysical existence, why not develop this attitude? If our aim is to develop a sense of detachment so that we, that we don't have to experience that intense suffering, then that can be done. Even we need not have to think that I am Brahman and uh, that everything is just a flow. I'm just a witness. That's good if you can practice. But it's very difficult. But to practice this Dvaita way is something which most of us can practice without any hypocrisy. I expect, I accept all my weakness. I accept all my samskaras. I accept myself as I am, knowing it for certain that it is not me. I am just the instrument through which the Lord is working. So I don't expect rewards from the world. Lord is working through me. I have done the work with all the faculties which he has given me and there it ends. What's the result is that's Lord's, that's not mine. So that itself speaks of detachment, that itself speaks of going beyond the desires, and that speaks of peace and tranquility. When uh, these people used to come to Swami Bhuteshananda and say that say so much of suffering in life, is there any way that we can get rid of the suffering? Maharaj very jokingly used to always say, it's very easy, it's very easy. So they, became, they used to become very eager. What's the way? They thought that he will say, say some uh, pranayama or some practice by which they can forget the suffering for the time being. Bhuteshandaji would reply, just get rid of the desire and all will feel so disheartened because that is such a difficult thing. But that's the only thing that the second Arya Satya Tanha, that there is dukkha, the cause of dukkha is tanha, the desire, the clinging. And in any way that we can, if we should, that by hook or by crook, we should try to get rid of that clinging, be it by having a sense that I am the servant of the Lord, or if it's uh, you are so evolved that you are one with the absolute, whatever way is possible, you get detached that itself will enter the annihilation of suffering. That itself will enter the, uh, even if it is not totally annihilated, it will actually attenuate, reduce the suffering. It won't be that intense. We can easily, easily cope up with the challenges of life. 
And that's what Sri Ramakrishna is saying here. I and mine, this constitute ignorance, my house, my wealth, my learning, my possessions. The attitude that prompts one to say such things comes of ignorance. On the contrary, the attitude born of knowledge is, O Lord, thou art the master and all these things belong to thee. House, family, children, attendants, friend are thine. One should constantly, and the next thing Sri Ramakrishna is saying now, that one, just see that one by one, he is giving us so many uh, steps to practice. That is practicing uh, this, the sense, the first he is saying that think yourself as the instrument, as the servant of the Lord. Now, now he is saying one should constantly remember death. Nothing will survive death. So this is another very important thing. If we are always aware that death is there at last, then the life becomes a journey. It's not our destination. And then to forbear with so many things becomes easy. When we are traveling somewhere, we easily put up with all the inconveniences, knowing it very well, it's just for the time being. It's not going to be there through eternity. So in life, we get so much agitated only because we think these are the be all and end all of my existence. It is going to be with me. If I knew it's just a journey, the death is there with which everything ends, then there is no question of taking the thing so seriously and fighting for all the trivials. We find in the uh, diary of Belumat, when Swami Vivekananda was alive, he was having conversations with the brahmacharis, the novices. He asked that one question to the novices one day, that what's the quality uh, which is prime, which is the most important for a sannyasi? So all were quiet. Some try, some told Viveka, Vairagya, love for God. Some were quiet. Swamiji was not at all uh, responding to this. He was not happy with those answers. At last he himself told, Sannyasi is the one who loves death. And then immediately after saying that, he knew that there may be some misunderstanding when he says you have to love death. And then he, again he clarified, does loving death mean suicide? No. It doesn't mean suicide. It means leading the life in such a way knowing for certain that in this life, everything else, everything else is uncertain. Nothing is certain here. What is going to happen to me tomorrow is not certain. But one thing is certain. The only thing which is certain in this life of uncertainty is death. It is there waiting for me somewhere. Knowing that, lead the life. Then you will find that the detachment again is growing. When you, so first, first uh, practice for developing is, uh, our detachment is think of the Lord as the master, you yourself as the servant, as the instrument. Second, always think of the death, not in a pessimistic way, that as death is there, why, what, what, what I have to do with the life. I do everything, what has to be done with the life, knowing very well the death is there waiting for me. 
the life can be very beautiful even when we know that death is there one of the swamis i heard this very beautiful example he narrated just the way we make the flower vases we know it for certain in 3 4 days all the flower will wither but does does that mean that we don't take care of the vase that as long as it is alive we take full care so that we can offer it to the lord we prepared them offer it to the lord knowing it very well it won't be lasting forever so that doesn't entail we don't take care of it but at the same time we are not attached to it we know that it won't last forever for the time being when i am preparing the vase i am offering anyone who sees will think will think he is so attached as if to it but the one who makes the vase he himself knows very well that in 3 4 days it is going to die it is going to wither so there is no question of attachment but yes to make it nicely and offer it that speaks of being in the moment knowing very well that the lord at present has given this with this with, with his things we are just worshiping him and it will be gone after 2 3 days so this is the real that love for death that love for death doesn't means not to take care at all just the way we take care of the flower of, of the vases that's the attitude we should have towards death knowing very well the death is there we take care of the life fully nicely as an offering to the divine but at the same time we are not attached to it so that's what ramakrishna is indicating by saying to constantly remember that death one should constantly remember death nothing will survive death we are born into this world to perform certain duties like the people who come from the countryside to calcutta on business if a visitor goes to a rich man's garden the superintendent says to him this is our garden this is our lake and so forth but if the superintendent is dismissed for some misdeed he cannot carry away even his mango wood chest he sends it secretly by the gatekeeper so sri ramakrishna is saying that god is a rich man here then enter nature is his wealth we are the supervisor superintendent that as long as we are the superintendent god gives his wealth even to us to take care of it and for the time being i say my this is my garden this is our garden our lake but a time will come when again maybe because of the misdeed or because of my age just the way superintendent has to retire so one day we have to leave and that that then not a single thing even a small thing which has no value even that i cannot take what is he speaking of that the same thing swami ji says in a different language that nature gives us everything at certain point of time and takes away everything at certain point of time nothing is ours god is that rich man and nature is his wealth he gives and again takes away we have no right so how can you say it is yours so if this awareness is always there then the question of this inordinate attachment to the things of the world is bound to lose loosen is bound to fall off so these are the suggestions which sri ramakrishna is giving so that we can develop that detachment god laughs on two occasions he laughs 
when the physician says to the patient's mother, don't be afraid mother, I shall certainly cure your boy. God laughs saying to himself, I am going to take his life and this man says he will save it. So as long as our life is there, the doctor's role is there. But once we are dead, what can the doctor do? Nothing. And the death is, is, is can the doctor predict, uh, can just control the death? No. All his skills are as long as life is there. The moment life is not there, he can do nothing. So God, that's why he says God laughs on two occasions. The first is when the physician says that I will cure your boy. When the death is inevitable, inevitable. How can he cure? I still I remember uh, many of you have heard of Ananda Mahima. She was a realized soul. One of her disciples was a doctor. I met him long back in Lucknow. So he related a very nice story, very nice incident that he told that when I became the doctor, that he, his family, his father, mother was also the disciple of Ananda Mahima. So when he became the doctor, his father and mother took him to Ananda Mahima just to give the good news that my son has become, our son has become the doctor. The moment they told my son has become the doctor, in Bengali, it's a very uh, uh, difficult to translate. Let me say in Bengali, and those who understand Bengali, they will understand it. How what a nice thing Anandamai Ma told. That the moment they told that our son has become doctor in Bengali, doctor is called Daktar. Immediately Anandamai Ma just addressed that boy. He was also Anandamai Ma's uh, disciple. He was just the medical student, young medical, medical professional just passed. So what Anandamai Ma told him was very interesting. Bujhecho daktar, daktar. Very interesting. That, oh, oh doctor, know it for certain, the ultimate call is his. Dark means call, tar, his. Dark, tar. So he's break the, breaking the word. So very nicely. The same thing Ramakrishna is saying here. That bujhecho daktar, daktar. So that's the thing. The ultimate call is his. We all, and that call is of waiting for all of us. Somewhere I read jokingly, the day we were born, so from that day, we have started our march. Our, uh, we are marching towards death. We are marching towards our own funeral, where our heartbeat is the big drum. You know, in the funeral procession, the big drum is being played. Your each and every heartbeat is a drum which is being played in the procession of your own funeral. You all have to go that way. The day we are born, from that day, our funeral procession has started. Because death is inevitable. That is betting there. The moment we know that, for certain, we are aware of that, immediately we will be dealing with the life in a much more detached way. So that's why Sri Ramakrishna is saying that God laughs and the physician says that I will certainly cure your boy. God laughs, saying to himself, I'm going to take his life. And this man says, he will save it. And again, God laughs in two occasions. What's another occasion? Uh, sorry, the physician thinks he's the master. 
forgetting that God is the master. God laughs again when two brothers divide their land with a string, saying to each other, this side is mine and that is yours. This reminds of one incident in the life of Holy Mother. Holy Mother was in Jairambati and he was sitting in the portico in the veranda of his house and his two brothers, they suddenly started quarreling over the boundary, the fence which uh, Varada, the elder brother was constructing, the younger brother told that the way you are constructing the fence is it is going to create a lot of inconvenience for me. He was actually giving the fence as he had the right to encroach the, his own property, but that encroachment would result in obstruction of the passage through which the younger brother is to go. So he started saying that, please don't encroach this land. Just a little more, a little, you just go a bit inside. And with this, the quarrel started and the quarrel uh, intensified. They both became agitated and they were about to have blows. They were about to just come, become just, uh, just to have, uh, they were about to come in blows. And now mother couldn't sit quietly. She became extremely agitated, seeing that the brothers were about to fight. He went between the two and he, uh, she went between the two and she herself got a bit agitated because they were quite strong. To stop them, she had to uh, just use her strength and she got totally exhausted. Somehow she was able to stop them. She got exhausted and getting totally exhausted, she was screaming at them and she came back. She apparently she was very much excited, came back again, sat on the veranda, relaxed a bit. And then suddenly she started, she had an outburst of laughter. She was laughing loudly. And then what she was saying that why she was laughing, that's that the, the realization is always there. It is what she started saying. Just now she was also a part of that quarrel as if when they tried to stop them, scolded them, reprimanding them, got a bit agitated. And the next moment she's in a total different mood. She's saying that this land, it was there, it is there, it will be there. These two fools will die after some time. The land is going to be there. And these two fools are just fighting by saying, this is yours, this is mine. So that's what we are doing. It is not only uh, just the two brothers, two nations are fighting. Even at present, the so-called civilized world with all our civilization, with all our development, we find at last, we are those that, the all that's, uh, the tribes of when our evolution started in the stone age, most probably we are worse than that. The way we go on fighting the, over these things. So God laughs again. Why these all these things happen? Because this world is the be all and end all of our existence. With all our power, with all our might, at last, death is the thing which is inevitable for us. We forget that. And we're forgetting that, taking this world to be the be-all and end-all of existence. Politics and all the narrowness of it, all sorts of uh, family quarrels, everything results from this limited understanding. The moment we can relate to the higher values of life, 
to the sublime values of life. The life could have been something totally different. How childishly we behave. And that's what Sri Ramakrishna is indicating, that he laughs and says to himself, the whole universe belongs to me, but they say they own this portion or that portion. Can one know God through reasoning? Be his servant. Surrender yourself to him and then pray to him. So this is again the question of surrender. So here again, you'll find it wonderful that when we are reading these words, we just go on reading without sometimes realizing so many steps, suggestions he's giving. The first was that to develop a sense of that you are the servant, he's the master, you are just the instrument in his hand. And then he spoke of to be aware of death. And as an illustration, that as an, to be aware of the death, he's speaking of this, that this land, it's not ours. The doctor, when he says that he will cure, this body is not ours, it's going to fall off. The, all the property which we think we have to leave with the death. So death is a thing. The next thing which he's saying now is speaking of resignation. That don't try to know God. Just surrender yourself, be his servant, and then pray to him. So this is the third aspect. That is surrender. Total surrender. Just don't try to know God, don't try to grasp God. That itself is in uh, to describe Nishkam Karma. Shankaracharya in one place very nicely is saying that Ishwaropi metushyatu iti sangam tyaktva. That when I am doing some good deeds, I may say that yeah, I don't have any desire for the people's approbation. But people find that as a devotee, somehow that subtle thought, desire is there, God will be pleased with me. Even to relinquish that. I am just doing because I have to do something. As Holy Mother used to say, very interesting thing, that as I have renounced everything, what I, my, my mind has to remain engaged. I just simply cannot sit as I have renounced everything. I have to do something. So that's why I am doing Japa. That's why I am doing this meditation. That God will be pleased because I am doing meditation. That's not my idea. God, he is, uh, not his love is not conditional. That I will do Japa, then only he will. I will do meditation, I will do Japa, I will pray. And then only he will be pleased with me. His grace is unconditional. When it comes, how it comes, we don't know. Actually, it is always there. It is our expectation that doesn't allow us to realize that God's grace is always, is always flowing. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say, Kripar Batash Boi Chore. It is always the, the wind of grace is always blowing. It is all, because of the ego, it gets obstructed in the ego. It doesn't allow the grace, that the, the wind of the grace cannot touch us because the ego as a wall obstructs it. So what's the idea behind it? What's the psychological process behind this surrender? 
which actually can enter in peace, tranquility. So today the time is over. So we will take this portion, the surrender, the science of surrender. That why this surrender is so important in spiritual life. Most of us, even after becoming a devotee, what we do, we try to cling to God. And with that clinging, there's an expectation that God will be pleased and delivering me some result. That itself becomes a type of bondage. To go beyond that bondage. We, that just to give an example, suppose that in a tree, you are holding onto the branch. To fall, no effort is required. Just to leave the hold, you will fall. But the gravitation will take you just down. Similarly, in the tree of samsara, we are holding to the branches with all our desires. If we can leave the hold, with the hold, the grace will, the grace will take us up to God. Just the way gravity takes us down, the grace will take us up. But what instead of releasing the hold, we are so much attached to our individual, to what we are doing, the branch which we are clinging to, most probably there are ants, which starts biting me, I'm suffering. I release the hold of this branch and get hold of another branch, which I nomenclature as God. I'm still holding. It's not the grace is, cannot as such take me up because again, though I have released the hold of this branch, I'm holding onto another branch, which I call God. So that is not allowing me to be in communion with the divine by his grace, which is always there. Just as the gravity is always there. The moment I leave the hole, it takes me down. So grace is always there. It is as we are clinging with our sense of identity, not surrendering, the grace cannot work on us. It cannot take us up. So this idea, we will elaborate with more to understand the science behind this surrender, that how it helps us to be in communion with the divine. And that in our spiritual journey also we will find that sometimes that uh, because of our spiritual practices, we enjoy, get the bliss for one day. And we think that now this is mine. I am going to get this bliss again. And again, it vanishes. Again, it comes suddenly. Why it happens? And how surrender is really has something to do with in this process. We will take up this as a discussion again in the next class. With this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskars.